Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Our leaders for a while have been thinking about re-envisioning uh, the direction of our church. Uh, like, we just feel like we need to like, get a grip and start marching forward again. We've all been living in this sort of COVID fog for a while, right? And it's time to wake up out of it and start taking some ground. Uh, so uh, it's, I don't know if you felt like this, but COVID has felt sort of like a space-time continuum. You know, we're like two and a half years. It felt like 15 years. And you're not really sure how to timestamp anything. Like, did that happen in 2020 or last week, right? Like, just by a show of hands real quick, um, who in here has aged five years over the past two years, right? So you know what I mean, right? It's just like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what to do. Once upon a time, Corona was the catchy name for a below average beer. Do you remember this, right? And poor them, they were like, we need to re-envision. So you know what they did? They brought in Snoop Dogg, Snoop Doggy Dog. And so that's gonna be our strategy. It's working for them, Snoop Doggy Dog, new worship leader. Sorry, Corbin. No, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. In, in, in the world of church, basically what's happened for most churches over the last couple of years is that, uh, is that we've had to shift into relief mode. Now, if you're in like nonprofit work or really into charity work, you know that there's two kinds of charity work. There's relief and development. Relief is meeting the pressing needs for someone to survive like right now. A tornado hits Western Kentucky and people need help right now. There's, there's a total lockdown and folks have food insecurity. They need to be fed or they will starve right now. Like that's relief work. Right? Development work is creating the systems and processes in a community so that people can thrive and develop over the long haul. Now, in my opinion, the church should be primarily in the work of development. Right? We want to create families. We want to build communities that can form people through this very difficult thing called life. But there are times where we really got to shift our focus to relief. And that's been the last couple of years. It's just been like one thing after the other. Like, you know, COVID hits and there's lockdowns and the, you know, the mandates are constantly changing. And then the Breonna Taylor tragedy and there's protests and rioting. And then there's like an election and an insurrection and vaccines and the economy. And it's one thing after the other. In my opinion, all of those things needed pastoral attention. People were hurting, people needed prayer. People needed to experience the love of Jesus in a church that cared. And, uh, and so we did that. It was necessary. It was difficult, but I think it was necessary. And now we feel like it's time to shift out of that mode. Now, on top of that, we also feel like the last couple years, we've really figured out who we are as a church. This is my opinion. You've heard me say this before, but I believe that adversity doesn't build your character in the moment. Everybody says adversity builds character, not in the moment. Adversity builds character over time. It builds character after, I don't know, you get to sit on it for a year or two and heal from it. But in the moment, adversity doesn't build character. Rather, it reveals your character. 
When you face trials and tribulations, it reveals who you are then. And we found out a lot about who we are. And I like most of it, honestly. I like who we are. I like what matters to our church. I like what hills that we're willing to die on. So with all that being said, we're ready to march forward again and we feel like we've got a sense of vision, what that looks like. Over COVID, some churches lost their sense of mission. Mission became secondary to survival. That will not be us. So uh, what I would like to do over the next several weeks is just give you a glimpse of where we're going. This is like a 30,000 foot vision. This is gonna be like a five-year conversation, okay? So I don't feel like I'm in a rush to have to explain it all today. Um, I wanna give you about a 30,000 foot view of 10 aspirational vision targets that we are strategizing towards over the next five years. Now I'm gonna read them to you right now. And then each week over the next five weeks, I'm gonna focus on one. So you'll get five of them in depth in this series. What you'll see here as I, as I read through them is one, we're gonna give you a target, like a specific target that we're aiming at. And two, I'm gonna to read to you a quote. And this quote just represents what we would hope one of you might say after being in our church over the next five years. So for example, in 2015, Love the Ville did not exist. But we started saying, we wanna earn for ourselves a reputation as a Love the Ville church. Fast forward today, we've earned that, right? In the same way, these are the vision targets that we wanna earn for ourselves a reputation of over the next five years. So, so here's, here's the first one. Um, we will become, this is again, a target and then a, a quote. We will become an equipping hub that trains people to unleash Jesus' love in their everyday life. What does that mean, Tyler? Well, it means that we'd hope somebody in this room, if you're here with us over the next five years, would say, look, they equipped me. My church equipped me to confidently take Jesus into the rest of my life. It's not just a Sunday service. They equipped me from Monday to Saturday. Now, the key word here, by the way, in this one is equipping hub, equipping hub. Let's just be honest. Some churches are entertainment venues, not equipping hubs. They, you come, you get entertained for you know, an hour on Sunday, you feel really, really good, and then Monday hits and you go back to living however you want to. Other churches use a better metaphor. Uh, they call themselves a hospital. You ever heard the phrase, the, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints? I actually like that one. My only problem with it is that a hospital is a centralized location that people come to in order to receive care. And I think the church should be even better than that. I wanna be an equipping hub. I wanna be a med school, if you will, a seminary where we're training up the doctors, we're training up the nurses to go out into their homes, into their workplaces, into their city, into their church, and take the love of Jesus there. That's what we're after. We wanna equip you to take Jesus into your life and be an equipping hub. Second, we will build a robust communal rule of life, a rule of life. We've talked about rule of life some, a rule of life. So our people grow in intimacy with God. So what does that mean, Tyler? Well, uh, in you know, layman speak, that uh, means that every single one of us will be able to say five years from now, I have rhythms and I have restrictions that actually help me resist popular culture and connect with God. And you need both, by the way. You need rhythms like Bible reading, prayer, Sabbath. And you also need restrictions like screen limits. If you're ever going to be able to connect well with God. Uh, third, we will ensure every person can name their pastor and friends 
within this church. Pastor and friends within this church. Somebody might say, I have a pastor who knows and loves me. And I have some of my closest relationships in the church. Now, the reality is that our church is big. And so um, while I might be everyone's preacher, I can't be everyone's pastor. Wish I could, I can't. So that's going to take some really systematic, process-oriented work to make sure that every person that calls this their home is connected to somebody who's more spiritually mature than them, who can pastor them, who can love them, who can guide them on this journey called life. Basics, by the way, is one of the keys of that for new people. So if you're new to this church, you need to get plugged into Northeast Basics and we'll help you find friends and a pastor here. Uh, Fourth, we will continue to build our reputation as the Love the Ville Church through our social concern. That ain't going nowhere. What I want our city to say is that no one, no one, no one loves the poor. No one loves the marginalized of this city like Northeast. Those people are everywhere. Fifth, uh, we will lead in facilitating unity among diverse churches in the Ville. I would love other churches and other Christians to say about us. They bring all sorts of churches together. There's no spirit of superiority. There's no spirit of competition. Same team, same team. That's how Northeast does it. Now, here's the thing. No one ever tell you about this, but churches are ruthless when it comes to competition. They are. They compete with one another. It's like, well, if they got a hot dog stand on the same street as our church, we better have a better hot dog, right? We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. People in the pew don't notice it, right? Because you don't care. When you're the leader of the church, you can feel it. It's tangible. And we want to resist that because we do not think that that's from God. So we'll be leaders in facilitating unity among Christians in this city. Next, we will be a multi-ethnic congregation, a multi-ethnic congregation. We want people of different colors and cultures to feel like this can be their church home. We want them represented in our church, represented in our partnerships outside of our church, and represented in our leadership, which means we've got some work to do. Next, we will invest disproportionately in discipling our youth especially the most committed. I want people to say, look, that's the place for you to go so that your kid can get the sort of intensive discipleship training that they need today. And kids need more today, I think, than ever before. Reference intentional parenting series just a few weeks ago. They do. We wanna be a hub for that. Next, uh, we will create thoughtful and beautiful expressions of the kingdom for our community. This gets at the art, y'all. I want people to say every time they create content, media, art, music, anything, it just strikes a chord with me. So so this is what I, by the way, I believe this is one of our key evangelistic strategies in the coming years. Beautiful art, beautiful content. The lost person of today is not like the lost person of 15 years ago. It's not like your punk rocker with tattoos who has an addiction right because that's what everybody thinks or thought was lost. no today it's I think there's two kinds of lost people today there's the de-churched and there's the apathetic the de-churched are people who are dealing with church wounds they've walked away from the church because the church hurt them in some way and the apathetic are people who just don't care they grew up around impotent churches or impotent faith impotent Christians who look just like them and so what's the point of being Christian Now, if you want to wake someone up out of apathy and make them care, if you want to heal the wounds of church hurt, I believe show them something beautiful. Show them the beauty of Jesus that captures their imagination in a way they never have before. And then you got them. So that's what we want to be about. 
Perfect example is our Someone Worthy Christmas movie we developed a couple years ago. More of that, more of that. Next, we will be a people of unceasing prayer. You felt the prayer temperature turned up? It's gonna keep going up. Um, I want people to say they figured out prayer. They pray all the time. It's not boring, it's not weird, it's life-giving. And last, we will be a congregation who knows, honors, and reads the Bible. If you're here over the next five years, by the end of it, I want you to be able to say, I grasp the story of the Bible. I respect it as authoritative. I know how to read it. And here's the key, I actually read it. I actually read it. And wow, could you imagine being a part of a church like that? There's your 10. I see that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, now leadership 101 class says you're not supposed to do 10, you're only supposed to do three. 10's too hard to remember. I don't care. I think in order to be a healthy church, you need deep people and you need more than 10 things. Healthy churches require more than just folks, or more than three things. Healthy church requires more than just three. So this is what we're after. This will hopefully become the culture here. Everything we do will be tied to some of these. And, and you could probably already feel it. We're heading in this direction already. Now, today, I want to begin by focusing on the most foundational one of them all. I saved it for last, so let me read it to you one more time. Can you throw up the last one again? Um, we will be a congregation who knows, honors, and reads the Bible. Start there today. I grasp the story of the Bible, respect it as authoritative, know how to read it, and actually read it. As the leader of your pastoral team, I'm asking you today to hold me accountable, to hold our team accountable over the next five years. If you stick around this church and you can't say that, 2028, and we failed you. But I'm gonna tell you what, we won't fail you, at least not in this regard. Now, with that being said, will you stand with me? Let's read from God's word. Uh, here's gonna be uh, our new church uh, unwritten rule going forward. Uh, we're gonna bring paper Bibles to church. Now, I know you got one. It's just on the shelf and it's like, <laughs> mommy, what's that? It's a Bible. You mean the YouVersion app's not the Bible? No, honey, there are real Bibles. Really? Yes, really. Um, okay, so start bringing your paper Bibles to church. Let's mark them up. Let's read from them. Let's be a church where you, can you hear, that? hear the pages turn when the, when the pastor says open your Bible. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the apostle Paul's writing to uh, his apprentice, Timothy, who's also a church leader in Ephesus. He, uh, he says this. Verse 16, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So chapter four, verse one, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will one day judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear they will reject the truth and chase after myths. But 
You should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. The word of the Lord, you can be seated. Now, this was Paul's dying commission to a church leader in Ephesus, one of the first church leaders like ever, Timothy. And in this commission, we see that Paul has an incredibly high regard for the scriptures. At this point, the scriptures are the Old Testament and the traditions of Jesus. The New Testament has yet to really be written and compiled and circulated altogether. But we also see that he thinks it is of vital importance for this church leader to hold up the scriptures and use them to rebuke and to teach and to encourage and to correct and to preach them to the people. Anytime we ordain someone into the ministry in this church, by the way, I read this passage over them because I want them to remember the centrality of scripture to our faith tradition. Look at what Paul says again about scripture. I just made a list. He says, all of it, all of it is inspired by God. That word's just God breathed. Uh, it teaches us what is right. It corrects our wrongs. God uses it to prepare and equip us for every good work. Wow. He also says false teachers will arise that will tell you to follow your desires rather than sound teaching. Sound familiar? But he says a good preacher will preach it even when it's hard and a good pastor will correct, rebuke, and encourage people with it. Now, the skeptic in me says, well, that's like all nice and stuff. But how do we know for sure that the Bible's that effective, that it's that good? Well, the numbers are in, y'all. I have good news. It's that good. I don't know if you know this. Next slide here. But the Bible is the undisputed number one best-selling book of all time. It's been in print altogether for over 1,600 years. More copies have been sold than Shakespeare, Dickens, Tolkien, or Twain altogether. The whole Bible is translated into over 704 languages. The New Testament is translated into over 1,150 languages. At least part of it has been translated into 3,324 languages, making Jesus the most recognizable proper name on the planet Earth. And the YouVersion app, just celebrated 500 million installs on people's phone last November. Do you have the YouVersion app? I was picking on it earlier. You should. Bring your paper Bible, but you should download that too. (laughs) Now, can you think of anything, by the way, anything in the history of humankind so culturally fluid yet also effective than the Bible? You want... Diversity, the power of... Look look no further. The Center of Biblical Engagement actually compiled a study. I shared the statistics with you several months back. Um, They compiled a study recently where they surveyed 40,000 people from the ages 8 to 80 in order to see how they were engaging the, the, the Bible. And as they surveyed them, they found something they did not expect. They found that if people engage with Scripture one time a week, This could include like coming to service and hearing a sermon from the Bible. Um, The effect on their lives was negligible. Didn't really impact them. If they engaged in scripture two times a week, still the effect was negligible. Three times a week, it helped people just a little bit, changed them just a little bit. But here's what they found. They called it the power of four. If you would just engage in scripture four times a week, four times, the impact on your life is profound. Uh, They found that alcoholism drops 57%. 
Sex outside of marriage drops 68%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. Feeling lonely drops 30%. Anger issues drop 32%. Bitterness in relationships drops 40%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. And discipling others jumps 230%. Now, by the way, these are just a few things that they measured. And if you can't tell, the research literally jumps off the page. If you put yourself in close contact with the word of God, it prevents unhealthy patterns of life, it promotes healthy patterns of thought, and it creates a vital and viral pattern of faith. And why? Well, because I believe it's actually the word of God. God breathed his desire for you and for me, and it's sharp. It's sharp. Uh, Hebrews chapter four, verse 11. Uh, The author of Hebrews says this. He says, so let us do our best to enter into the rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as Israel's. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Word of the Lord. Now, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad got a new Swiss Army knife. Anybody ever owned a Swiss Army knife before? Okay. Did it, is anybody, are you from Kentucky? Has anybody ever owned a Swiss Army knife before? Okay, so I grew up in a rural, rural town. I don't know about you, but all my friends knew how to hunt, uh, knew how to like shoot a gun. They knew how to handle a, a knife. They had a pocket knife and a skull ring in their back pocket by the third grade. I'm just saying, like they knew these sort of things. And... Um, that's because their dads imparted these sort of things upon them. All right. Now, uh, my dad was a preacher. So he imparted upon me the word of God, which I'm appreciative of, but he did not know how to swing a hammer. He did not know how to shoot a gun. He did not know how to handle a knife. So sadly, this Swiss army knife just sat in a drawer, unused, which was a tragedy. So one night, I think it was maybe the second or third grade, I snuck upstairs, Okay, not advisable, by the way, young people, but I snuck upstairs and got the Swiss Army knife out of his drawer and I want to check it out. So I opened up like all 70 blades, all the little accessories. There's like a toothpick. You remember the toothpick, which is disgusting, but it's a toothpick and I like, you know. And, um, and after using it for a few minutes, all of a sudden I started to notice that I was, I was bleeding. I looked down, I'm, I'm bleeding. I'm like bleeding profusely. By the way, my dad still does not know this story. So don't, <laughs> online audience... No, let's edit this out. So no, but I'm bleeding. And so I go into the bathroom and I start washing my hands to see what, what's happening. And I notice on both of my thumbs, two cl- very clean, almost invisible cuts from where I gently rubbed my finger against the blade. It was that sharp. And that's the word, by the way. That's the word of God. When you put yourself into contact with it, it is so sharp, a double-edged sword, it will cut you without you even realizing it. 
Now, by the way, I thought it was an interesting decision in this passage for the author to use the metaphor of a double-edged sword. If you read the beginning of the passage, verse 11, what he's trying to do is to help us all find rest. So in order to find rest, he says, you need a battle sword. That's what a double-edged sword is, by the way. The reason why it's double-edged is so that a warrior in battle can swing it either way and cut down their enemy, right? So I want to help you find rest by giving you a sword. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Let me read verse 11 again. Let us therefore make every effort to enter the rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as Israel. For the word of God's alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. But let me ask you, isn't this what life is? It's a battle to find rest for your soul, peace for your mind, contentment for your heart, congruency in your life. And the author here says, well, unrest Exhaustion, disillusionment, and fatigue, that's the consequence of disobedience. But rest is the consequence of obedience. Or let me say it like this. When we live our lives in congruence with the word of God, it brings rest to our souls. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, uh, we've looked at uh, the Apostle Paul. We've looked at the author of Hebrews. I want to give you a little different take on the Bible. Um, Judah. Do you know that Jesus had another brother and wrote a book in the Bible? Jude or Judah, second to last book. Um, and he offers us a bit of a different phrase for God's word. In Jude, chap, uh, Jude verse 3, he calls, uh, he calls God's word the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Everybody say once for all. Yeah, okay, so you know what that means? Um, it means... Once for, for all, right? Like, no, it means no new revelation, no popular cultural fad, no progressive theological trend can change the faith that has been entrusted to us. Like, our great God does not need new enlightened Bible readers to help him improve the scripture for our day and age. He's good, he's fine. This is one of the things that concerns me, by the way, about our cultural moment. The way in which we take liberties in updating or twisting or progressing or modifying Christianity in order to make it more palatable, more palatable for our politics or more palatable for our culture, more palatable for our sin preferences or our personal desires. Like People are looking for a version of God's word that they can use to cut others rather than be, by, uh, be cut by themselves. It's been a profound phenomenon over the last couple of years, more than ever I've seen in ministry. When new people come to our church, not all new people, but some new people, um, like their first question are things like, um, what's your mask policy? What's your position on human sexuality? Are you guys pro-life? And I always think to myself when we hear questions like that, and there's a number of them, I'm like, okay, I can answer that for you, and it'll tell you a little bit about us, a little bit. But just by the very nature that you let off with that question, it tells me everything I need to know about you. Hmm. 
Maybe our first question should be, what do you believe about Jesus in the Bible? Because that should tell us most of what we need to know about a church. But that's not what matters to people today. So what we do is we take the faith once for all entrusted to the saints and we grind out all its sharp edges so it doesn't cut our political sensibilities or our racial prejudices or our materialism or our greed or our sexual desires and we turn the double-edged sword into a butter knife. Uh, Lee Strobel uh, describes all the interpretive twists we take today in a really interesting way. Um, He says, pretend your daughter and her boyfriend uh, go out for a Coke one night, which you can tell his book's a bit dated, like they go out for a Coke, right. Um, but um, he says, and, and you say to them, you know, Dad, uh, you must be home before 11. You must be home before 11. Now, uh, it gets to be 1045, and they're really having a good time, so they don't want to come home. So all of a sudden, your daughter and her boyfriend begin to have a really hard time interpreting the command that you gave them that you thought was pretty clear. They say, well, what did dad really mean when he said, you must be home by 11? Like, did he literally mean us, or was he talking about it in like a general sense? Like, like, you know, people in general are usually home by 11? Is that what he meant? Oh, what did dad mean when he said, uh, you must, you must be home by 11? Like, I mean, my dad loves me. It's, why would he be so intolerant and inflexible and repressive in that way? Like, I'm, I'm having fun. And Dad would want me to have fun, right? So we should just keep having fun. Oh, and what did he mean when he said you must be home, be home by 11? Like he didn't specify who's home. And as, as you know, the old saying goes, the home is where the heart is and my heart's right here. So I think we should stay right here. Oh, and, and what did he mean when he said you must be home before 11? Like he didn't specify PM or AM. Didn't specify if it was Eastern Standard Time or Central Standard Time. Shoot, if it's 11 p.m. here, it's 5 p.m. in uh, Honolulu. And he loves Hawaii. So we got a few more hours to spend, right? We got time. Look, so with all these ambiguities from Dad, we can't be sure what he meant. And if he can't make himself more clear, we can't be held responsible. Now, we laugh. We laugh but I don't think I need to connect the dots for you, do I? (laughs) Now back to Jude. Jude said that this is the faith once and for all entrusted. There's another key word right there, entrusted to the saints. New Testament scholar Peter David, uh, uh, David's actually says that the word entrusted indicates the passing along of a tradition. Entrusted from one generation of elders to be passed along to the next generation of youngers. And I love this idea. It's so beautiful. Like, you do realize that billions of Jesus people have done life before us, right? In all sorts of diverse situations. And they have taken our faith and applied it to almost every issue that we're facing today. Very little of what we are facing now in the U.S. is new. And you know what that means? This is good news. It means that we don't have to do life without wise guides. Like we don't have to relearn all of these lessons and mistakes all over again. We don't have to get bruised and beat up and make the same mistakes. We don't have to destroy our lives and wreck our relationships and harm our bodies. Other people have already made those mistakes for us. So if we'll just humble ourselves and live in submission to the faith 
once and for all entrusted to the saints and study how generations have applied and distorted the scriptures, then we can avoid so much pain, so much. And we can live into a worldview that's stood the test of time across diverse cultures. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Oh, how I wish young people would ditch the worship of celebrities for the celebration of the saints. Like we let celebrities, many of whom, not all, like there's good celebrities out there, but many of whom aren't necessarily Christian. We let them determine the horizon for so many things for us. Some things less important like fashion and lingo. Some things more important like our morality, like our politics, the way we steward our money or our bodies. We have so many better opinions available to us, church, than those coming out of Hollywood. Festo Kievenjir, Pandita Ramabai, Corey Tinboom, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Mother Teresa, Thomas Dorsey, Dorothy Day, C.S. Lewis, Mary McLeod Bethune, Henry Nowen, Florence Nightingale, Howard Thurman, Sojourner Truth, Eric Liddell, Nai Kwai Sing Sung, John Perkins, Lottie Moon, John Stott. These are just a few from the last century or two that we can look to to see what a beautiful life looks like. So look, youths, be the generation who, who ditches the celebrities for the saints. The saints got something more timeless, tried and true to teach you, I promise. Let me give you one more example here. Today, the word often used for the faith once and for all entrusted to us is, uh, is the word orthodoxy, orthodoxy. Everybody say orthodoxy. So ortho means um, right in Greek. Uh, doxy means belief in Greek, so it's, it's right belief. And in Acts, what we now call the orthodox faith was called the way. It's called the way. Acts chapter nine, verse two, uh, tells us that Paul, at this point he's, he's Saul, Saul the persecutor, um, requested letters addressed to the synagogues of Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of many of the followers of the way that he found there, the way. Now, this is the first couple years of the church's existence, by the way, Acts 9. And what were they called? The way. Why? Because they believed, they preached, that Jesus had risen from the dead and he had a way that he called his disciples to live into, even in the face of the persecution we see in this passage right here. So what is orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is Jesus's way passed down to us today. That's what it is. And I'm just gonna be honest with you, we are an Orthodox church. We disciple and form people into an Orthodox faith. We are not a progressive church. Don't let our social justice or our racial concern fool you. We are not a conservative church in what that word has come to mean today. Don't let our sexual ethics or our family values fool you. We don't align with the left. We don't align with the right. There are things beautiful about each. There's also things that we should be critical of in each. We are a Jesus church. We are a biblical church. And that puts us at odds with popular culture. But, but we believe there is a body of teachings and practices that were validated by Jesus, inspired by the Spirit, and passed down in Scripture for at least 2,000 years now that can show us the way.
And so that's why we aim to promote a vision of biblical literacy and fidelity here. We will be a congregation who knows, honors, and reads the Bible. I grasp the story. I respect it as authoritative. I know how to read it. And I actually read it. Again, that's the key. Now, um, that's why I'm really, really excited to roll out a different sort of way that we're going to do services next year. Like weekend services. So real quick, next year we're going to have five different kinds of services. And each one of them will feel unique to you. I'm going to put them on the board for you. Um, we're going to have Bible study services where we literally get deep and study the text. Content rich, content heavy um, gatherings. We're going to have equipping services, which we might as well call them normal services because they'll look a lot like what we do on a weekend and week out. Like the intentional parenting series, that's going to be, it's going to be stuff like that. Um, we'll have prayer and worship services where we're highly intentional about uh, illustrating God through the arts and praying for one another and for our city and world. We'll have celebration services where we're just going to party and celebrate what God's doing in our church on those weekends. They're going to be fun. And we're going to have Blitz Days, plural. You already know what a Blitz Day is because every, uh, uh, every year we do our school Blitz. Three times next year, we're going to do three different Blitz Days. Now, here's how we've kind of sliced them up. We've sliced the year up into trimesters, if you will. If you're pregnant, I'm sorry for triggering you here. But it's, we're going to do it in trimesters. Because that's what we believe the flow of our church goes. Um, from, uh, from January to May, we're going to have some of these services. From May to... Uh, to the fall, we're going to have some of these services. And then from the fall to the Christmas, we're going to have some of these services. All right. Basically, uh, what you'll see, I've, I've got the uh, January through April schedule already laid out for you. Don't worry. We'll give you something um, that, will, that will lay this out for you uh, in the next couple months. But you'll see just in a regular rhythm, we're going to work our way through. In January, we have three weeks where we're studying the Bible. Then we'll have a practical series. And we got, that's, that's, that's sort of a sandwich between two prayer services. We're gonna come back and do another practical one. Then we've got a special serve blitz before Easter. Then we got a Palm Sunday celebration. It's Good Friday, it's Easter. Then we come back to some Bible studies. Now, how many of you came from a high church environment, by the way? In high church environments, they have a, a liturgy every week and they follow the church calendar throughout the year, right? And I know sometimes that can feel rigorous or even boring, but I think it's important. You see, when you regularly and rhythmically take people through the same thing, we read an Old Testament and New Testament passage, we kneel here, we stand here, we confess here, we pray here, now we take the Eucharist, we say these words together, pronounce this creed, whatever, right? When you do that, over time, you actually form people into habits. It gets into your bones. Like how many of you could walk into a, a Catholic service today and know exactly what to do? And you haven't been there in 15 years right? Because it gets in you. In the same way, we want to create our own liturgy, our own rhythms. We want to form our people to be equipped to unleash Jesus' love in their life, to know the scriptures, to pray and worship well, to celebrate God and what he's doing in our lives, and to serve our community. So again, each trimester, we're going to kind of break it out and have different kinds of services to form ourselves in that way. There will be one blitz day, each one of the three, one celebration day, each one of the three, one or two prayer days, and then a lot of Bible study and a lot of practical equipping. Are you following me? I am very excited about it. Uh, and uh, in the future, you'll hear more. Now, let me close with some vision. <clears throat> I, want, I want to be clear on this, okay? The reason why we think the Bible matters so, 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 so much for us Is Jesus. 
Jesus is why. We love Jesus. We trust his wisdom, his stunning intellect, his genuine compassion, his divine power, his eternal perspective, his strange attractiveness, his mysterious commands, and his countercultural vision for life. We find his life and his teachings to be the most compelling vision for how to do life that the world has ever had to offer. And we believe it's found here in God's word. It's actually confusing to me how so many people can be like, I love Jesus, but I don't like the Bible. Because I'm always like, how? Like, how is that possible? I actually trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. Jesus had an incredibly high view of scriptures. He endorsed the Old Testament. His life is recorded in the Gospels. And then he commissioned the apostles who go on to write the New Testament. Like in many ways, Jesus is the one who set the Bible apart. Big point here, though. I wanted this to be clear. The Bible doesn't give us Jesus, though. You know that, right? Jesus is the one who gave us the Bible. The New Testament didn't give us the story of Jesus. No, the story of Jesus happened in real history, in real time on the other side of the world. And then it was so profound and impactful that people started to write it down in documents and those documents were collected together into what we call the New Testament today. But it all started with this man whose life could not be ignored. He was born seemingly illegitimately to a nobody and then he fled to a refuge, uh, as a refugee to a foreign land. And then he was raised in a hick town called Nazareth, working construction. But somehow, at the age of 30, he knew the scriptures. He was untrained in preaching or homiletics, but he spoke with authority. He was but a young man, yet he was able to challenge the religious elite and comfort any suffering person. And he did miracles. Oh, he did miracles in front of thousands. And he healed the sick, sometimes all day long in country villages. There was something about him, something divine, something divisive, something unstoppable. And people took notice. They began to whisper, perhaps this is the king. Perhaps this is the Messiah. And people left their jobs to follow him. Crowds formed to listen to him. And people were ready to die for him. And so because of that, the powers that be at the time killed him. And it all seemed to come to a crashing halt in that moment, right? On Good Friday and Black Saturday... Until all of a sudden, person after person, hundreds, thousands of people began to claim that he had risen from the dead. The tomb was empty and that he'd appeared to them. One crowd of 500 people said he appeared to us, James and Judah, his brothers, who thought he was a lunatic just weeks before all of a sudden switched teams and said, our brother is the Lord of the universe. And you wouldn't believe it. He can save you from your sin, shine light into your darkness and resurrect the dead. And so people started to write it down. The story was too great. It was too good to be true. God was doing something in human history that everyone in the world needed to hear about. And so this, uh, this tax collector named Matthew wrote down some of the traditions together in a story. And, and then Peter grabbed his intern Mark and they gathered the traditions in their own story. And Luke, this doctor, and John, they, they wrote down their story. And they started circulating these stories all over the Roman Empire at an unprecedented rate. They spread like wildfire. And it didn't matter that it cost mounds of money or mounds of time to make copy after copy after copy. It didn't matter that people had to take months out of their life to carry a letter 
from Paul to like the other side of the world. It didn't matter that 90% of the people alive were illiterate. It didn't matter that they were doing it oftentimes at the risk of their life because people thought the story of Jesus to be too good to be true. It was too good to be kept silent. And why? Why? Well, it's because it's the Bible and it floated down from heaven in a golden beam. No, that's not why. Jesus is why. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. Then he rose from the dead. And that's where we find his story. So look, we're all trying to get the good life, right? And none of us know how to get there because we've never been there. So in faith, we have to put our trust in something. We have to rely on the wisdom of someone who knows how to get there. We have to find a guide who we believe is trustworthy and true and then live into their mental maps. The question is not, do you live by faith? We all live by faith. The question is, what do you put your faith in? Now, our culture tells us, put your faith in yourself. Put your faith in your inner vibes and in your inner feelings and your inner emotions. Follow your heart, it says. But Christianity says, I've got a better place for you to put your faith in. A better story, a truer story, a bigger story, a story more in tune with reality and human flourishing. And it doesn't come from the inside out. It comes from the outside in. It's the way of Jesus. And I'll promise you this, if you stay here, you'll learn this story, which will one day, one way or the other, be all of our story. So I welcome you to stay and become a student of the Bible. A student of Jesus. Heavenly Father, let this be the beginning of a journey for so many of us where we just immerse ourselves in your story and we find the rest and the life that comes from walking in the way of Jesus. It is in his name we pray, amen.